0: the Hopebound Podcast, and I'm your host, Danielle. But this podcast isn't about me, it's about you. Hi, Kristen. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm really excited to hear what you have to share. And just as a little introduction so that uh, the listeners know, Kristen is someone who has been very involved Um, in a lot of different kinds of advocacy work and has been just a huge um, help to me personally when I was going through a really, really hard time and trying to work through my divorce and trying to move past um, some of the, just the confusion of being involved in a domestic violence situation, just the, the frustration and confusion and trying to figure out how to rebuild life. And so she is a really great resource and someone that I'm really excited for us to listen to. So Kristen, can you introduce just a little bit more about yourself and what you do and a little bit of your story and why you're doing what you're doing?
1: Okay, well, um, I experienced domestic violence uh, myself. So that's why I do what I do, because it was so um, frustrating and there wasn't the kind of help out there that I that I needed there was some help there were support groups but there wasn't um, a lot of practical help and and lay legal help and things like that that I I desperately needed and um, so I just found that by sharing my story and just helping others that I would come and encounter uh, with you know that that was something valuable and so I just did decided to make that kind of the thing I wanted to do. And, um, I just kind of, you know, I ended up managing a shelter, a women's shelter for domestic violence and human trafficking, uh, for over 10 years. And I started a lay legal program out of that. And it just expanded into a lot of different areas. Um, so for me, my approach is not to just listen and validate and the active listening, which is really important. And it's a big part of what I do, but I feel like advocates are problem solvers or or try to help the the participant, help the victim, you know, solve some obstacles and overcome those to make it possible to become free of the abuse and manipulation and control of a domestic violence abuser, basically. So um, if they're walking that, if I can walk that path with them, helping to get over some of these obstacles, they can get free of that and then take back their life essentially and not fall back into and slip back into it with either the same abuser or a new one. So that's why I do what I do. Thanks for sharing
0: a little bit about that. And when you were in an abusive relationship, I know you had kids also and they were quite young at the time. Um, and it, it was a a struggle to get out of that with your kids. Do you mind sharing just a little bit about kind of the situation and some of the, the feelings and the concerns you had trying to get out of that situation and trying to protect your kids?
1: The, the courts are not very protective of children with domestic violence, you know, that are in domestic violence. I feel like the courts kind of look at a domestic violence, um, situation as well if we can separate the parties basically separate the abuser from the abuse but they they don't see it that way they see it as a conflict they don't necessarily see it as there's a predominant aggressor an abuser and and, and someone who's being abused a victim Um, I think they see it as kind of two bickering kids in the backseat of the car and they're like hey well they're divorcing they're separate households now just send the kids back and forth between them basically and that's you know, I know I'm oversimplifying it, and I know that i'm I don't want to generalize it, you know too much and and get into too much trouble there with because every case is different. There's unique uh, instances and um, different judges and so forth. But across the country, there is there seems to be a, an issue with trying to protect children in domestic violence, that it's not the courts aren't really recognizing the dynamics behind the, the manipulation. And using the courts to continue that control over another person, you know, that person. Um, so a lot of people say, why doesn't she just leave? You know, well, there's so many obstacles in the way. First of all, um, every 30 minutes, a, fam- a woman and children are, are turned down from a shelter in, in Arizona. So that's just in our state. So there's nowhere to go, number one. So that that's a, a good reason. Another reason would be, um, and I've talked to many, many clients that I've had that they didn't feel that they were going to protect once they separated um, because then the children would be alone with the abuser, you know, and then they weren't going to be a buffer for them anymore. And that was very alarming to them. And uh, there were um, clients that literally went back to the situation. I know of um, several women who actually stayed until their child was in high school or graduated, and then they left. They they waited all that time just so they could be protective. Um, so there are studies that are out and the judge's journal has a particularly good article and it talks about domestic violence and the effects on children's brains and, um, children's brains, you know, they have the fight or flight as well. So that cortisol dumps into their system and adrenaline and, and things that affect their actual makeup of their brain while their brain is developing. Um, so that's really bad news for a mom to think about it that way. However, um, brains are a lot like skin and, and, and can heal under the right conditions. So you can provide, um, the right environment for your children and the brains can, their brains can heal from it. So there's good news to that. It's not like a, the per, the damage is permanent and there's nothing you can do about it. So I don't want to be alarming that way and be, you know, shed such a negative light on it. But I, I do want to bring that awareness that just being around it and just being, um, a witness to domestic violence is very, it affects them. It affects their brains physiologically, um, not just, you know, emotionally. So it's really important, I think, to educate the courts and the public about the effects of domestic violence and not just the incidences themselves, but actually being exposed to the person who's causing that, the predominant aggressor who's causing the abuse, being, you know, because that exposure to that abusive person is, is detrimental and, or can be detrimental. And there's statistics that um, the majority of uh, men who batter their wives, who physically abuse abuse the children's parent, mother, um, often the majority abuse their own children physically or sexually too. So there, I don't think that we're, as a society and a legal system, we're necessarily connecting, connecting that, that danger and being as protective as we could be.
0: Yeah. And, you know, from my own experience, I'll tell you, I, I guess from friends also, I have seen exactly what you're describing, where there really isn't a big stance on protection. It's more about, okay, well, let's just, you know, make everything half and half and see what happens. (laughs) And, you know, I, I always have that concern in the back of my head when I'm talking with people, knowing that, the courts do tend to allow the kids to go back into dangerous situations. When that happens, I think that we as parents or, you know, teachers or whoever is around these kids, we need to make sure that we are are being a safe place for those kids and that, you know, we can't do everything. We can't, I mean, we can't affect what the courts decide. They decide what they do. But we can be that support system for those kids and try to provide that safety and comfort so that at least when they are around us, they know that they're safe and that there is a way to, you know, relax with us. But it's important that we can be
1: that for them. Right. So concentrate on the time there with you as much as you can and provide the safe space, you know, because it's exhausting to be with an abusive person, isn't it? It's, it, it takes all your energy and strength. It, it's just, you know, mentally exhausting to walk on eggshells and to be constantly worried about when that, you know, person's going to get upset or, or there, there's going to be an issue. And when that shoe's going to drop, you know, it, it keeps you on edge and it's very tiring. And, um, I, a lot of my clients report that when the kids come back, they're just exhausted and tired and they just want to kind of decompress. And it takes them a little while to do that and then once they kind of decompress then they kind of go back to what they would describe as, as normal the kids that they know but that they're very different kids coming back home and then they have to kind of decompress before they go back out and it can be very upsetting and frustrating and and it's hard to um it's hard to accept that that's the way um, it is. And I wanted to point out something else is that I think that by leaving the abuse, we are sending a message to our children so that maybe they won't be a statistic where they end up, you know, a lot of girls in particular will end up with an abusive partner if that's what's been modeled, you know, uh, for them. And I think we're sending them a message that that's not okay. And I think that that has a big impact. Um, and I think that, it, and, you know, we blame women for not leaving, you know, and victims of domestic violence for not leaving, but yet we're not really as a society paving the way for them to be able to leave in a safe way and have a place to go. And um, then we do a lot of victim blaming. Um, And the other thing is it's just not safe because 75% of the fatalities that happen in domestic violence happen while the victim is trying to leave or has left. And that perpetrator finds, you know, is is stalking and, and looking. So that that's that's a huge consideration so there needs to be a safety plan that needs to be when the victim feels safe enough to do so and we just have to stop victim blaming you know that they didn't leave or that they did leave and maybe they should stay in the marriage i mean we just blame them all over the place don't we um and i think as and and again the systems uh, around us are also such that um if if something happens in your home with domestic violence dcs can hold you know, the non-offending parent accountable and say failing to protect. But if you go to family court and you try to leave that abusive person and you're trying to protect your children, they really don't allow you to necessarily, you know, the way that I feel like they should. So it's a really tough situation to be in. It's kind of, there's just kind of no nowhere to go. That's a win-win for everybody.
0: Uh, For those listening, if you're in a relationship like what we're talking about, where you're wanting to leave, it's really important to go and speak with a legal advisor, a lawyer or an advocate who really does know the law in your area so that you're able to figure out what it is that you need to set yourself up for the best chance of success. And that safety plan is just so important. And I've mentioned before in some previous episodes, we've talked a little bit about what a safety plan is and how to kind of create it and the need to have other people involved in it. So you're Mm -hmm. not just executing a plan on your own, but that you have people you can call who are, they know they're part of the safety plan. They know that they're going to come help. They know what they're going to do. And having that in place is so important, but also having that legal advice so that you can give yourself and your kids the best chance at moving forward um, in an easier way, but knowing it, it could be difficult. Staying is often very difficult and it could be, you know, if you're experiencing domestic violence, it could be something that's putting yourself and your kids in danger. So it could be a very dangerous choice, but leaving isn't easy. So you have to make sure that you do what needs to be done to be ready to make those hard choices and to, you know, in some cases to live in a situation that's a little bit hard in different ways to protect the safety of yourself and your kids.
1: Yeah. It's, and it has to be a case by case basis. And I would recommend everyone to look for an advocate, look for someone who understands the dynamics of what you're going through and, and lay out a safety plan, like you said. And I mean, we buy it, we get insurance for our car and our house and things like that. It, it, a safety plan to me is also, even if you're not ready to leave yet, it's kind of like an insurance policy that you have if, if you do need it. It doesn't making a safety plan can be scary, and it kind of brings up all the things that we want to avoid and and uh, say, oh, oh, never mind. I I thought I wanted to, but now it's just too real, or just talking about it's too scary. But I think just make a safety plan. You don't have, no one's going to force you or coerce you into going ahead with it until you're ready. Um, but having it is a really good idea, so that you just know it's there. And so I think that it can be comforting to know I have the safety plan I have. Um, somebody and also confide in someone whether it's a friend whether it's a family member um, maybe just a neighbor uh, confide in someone I mean there's a a case that's being retried right now where the husband killed or allegedly he was convicted but then they overturned it on appeal due to a, a piece of evidence that was allowed in that that they're saying shouldn't shouldn't have been and that piece of evidence was the wife's letter to a that she gave to a neighbor saying if something happens to me my husband did it and uh and then she she was she died from poisoning and and um so that's being retried right now so I want to be careful with my language because it's alleged but but um so she didn't feel like she could confide it it looks like in, in anybody um so at least she but she at least told a neighbor, you know, so what I'm saying is reach out to someone, um, maybe you don't want to tell a family member, not because they'll judge you or, but maybe they'll, you're afraid they'll be like, yes, let's, you know, and, and and make you leave before you're ready or something, (laughs) Who, who knows, there's, there's so many people with advice out there, um, but I would say take advice from somebody who knows what they're talking about, try to find an advocate, um. I want to echo what you said about legal advice, even if you think you can't afford it, there are some programs out there with with legal clinics There are reduced rate programs, like in Pima County, there's a $35 consultation you can have through lawyers referral service and a reduced rate if you hire someone, um, because paying a little bit of money or, or finding that advice in the beginning save you a lot of trouble at the end and it it can even save you money in the long run it's kind of like a little bit of an investment in what you're about to go through to kind of get off to the right start and also find out what your rights are um you know you may have a lot more rights than than you think um you know arizona is a community property state so you know you're entitled to half of the community so i mean a lot of people especially wives are very um surprised to hear that you know that of the things that are available to them that they didn't know, so please do seek advice on that, and, and just get to know what your rights are. I mean, most of us did not get into a domestic violence situation overnight, and it's not going to be getting—it's not going to be getting out of it overnight. Um, it takes time <laughs> and planning, and in some patience, and just some well thought out. Uh, thinking it through carefully is going to make a big difference.
0: And and we've talked a little bit about situations that are more physically unsafe. Um, but there's also a lot of emotional abuse, a lot of control where it shows up a little bit differently in the relationship. And maybe there's no physical risk, but you're realizing that you're being constantly, talked down to, you're being called names, you're being yelled at. There are a lot of other kinds of really difficult abuse to go through. And so, you know, if someone is listening who they're safe physically, they don't have to worry about that, but they are dealing with these attacks or the yelling or um, situations that make them feel psychologically or emotionally unsafe what are some tips or some um, helpful advice you might give them to try to stay safe, change the situation a little bit? Um, you know, if it's not necessarily something they want to leave, but they want to, to
1: work to protect themselves better. Well, I want to say a couple of things about that. One is um, all, I think every single victim I've ever uh, been involved with over all the years that I've been an advocate Um, every single one of them has who had physical abuse as well as the verbal and mental abuse all said that the mental abuse was even worse than the physical abuse and now I had I was intaking residents with their face beaten up and and marks on their neck and things like that you know serious physical abuse and uh, coming into shelter with the clothes on their backs you know um, some with children some without Um, And so I just want to say that the the mental abuse, they all have reported that that was worse, that the physical, um, you know, things, you know, injuries heal, but, but the mental abuse is the hardest part. So I just wanted to say that part, but I don't ever want to, we can't downplay the effects of mental abuse because without the mental abuse and emotional abuse, you can't keep your victim there. So the mental and physical, you know, the mental abuse is so important to an abuser to be able to keep their victim there because that's how they manipulate. That's how they keep you um, thinking it's your fault, for instance, or just manipulating the situation to keep you there. Um, Without it, you know, they they wouldn't, you wouldn't stay. So it's really important piece to this because it's so manipulative. Um, And so, yeah, there are things that, um, and also I just one more thing about if you feel safe because it's just just been mental abuse um i mean nobody expects that they're going to be a victim of physical abuse until it happens so i don't want anyone to feel like they're 100% safe just because it's only been in quotes you know mental abuse thus far always be on the lookout for that um you know that it could escalate um usually abusers only use the amount of abuse that's necessary to keep you under the control that they want, right? So if what they're doing is mental abuse and that's enough to keep you doing what they want you to do and keep you under their coercive control, then they don't have to escalate that. But maybe they're getting some pushback or maybe they just, um, you know, feel like they need to um, exert more pressure and more manipulation. So, So, I mean, so there isn't, Usually, women are expecting that to be part of their lives. Um, but there are some non-defensive language skills you can you can use some some kind of neutral uh, things you can do to kind of stop emotional abuse in its tracks. Um, and I have found this to be very successful uh, with a lot of um, clients. I have like a a few different tiers of of the neutrality up to more empowering language that kind of you know takes more of a stand so to, to give you an example um instead of getting on the defensive because that's what abusers like to do they get us on the defensive like how why did you take so long at the store what were you really doing you know they oh no I, you know and then you get defensive and that puts them in the authority over you and that just starts a big long rabbit trail doesn't it of back and forth and um that you know, you feeling worse about yourself and then everything's your fault. And then it just keeps that cycle going. So instead of saying, well, no, I'm not, or no, I didn't, you know, um, just try to say something like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's not how it went. You know, just try not to defend and get into all the particulars of, of, um, defending yourself, because I feel like that's just sucking you into this whole mental abuse uh, cycle. Um, you can say things like, that's an interesting way of looking at it. <laughs> you can say, you know, oh, maybe we can talk when you're not so upset. I mean, that might make them more upset, though. So so I have a few different tiers of, of you know, phrasing this um, all the way to empowering phrases like, well, I'm no longer willing to argue about this with you. I'm no longer willing to defend myself about this issue. Um, you know, it's no longer okay for you to yell at me that way or cuss at me or, you know, um, yell in front of the children or something like that. Or, um, you know, so, so there's language that's very neutral, like, Oh, I'm sorry. You feel that way. I, you know, that's not the way it is and try to shut it down. Try not to defend and get into all the particulars and get sucked in. Just try to try that first. And then you can go all the way to the empowering stuff where maybe if you feel safe enough to just say, you know, I'm just not doing this with you. I'm, I'm, i messages you know i reject that notion that you're saying about me and it's i'm not going to defend myself and i don't don't have to um but i wouldn't recommend doing that if you feel that that's going to put you in danger and that's why there's different you know different levels of of the language and and how empowering it is or how neutral it is but there are ways to not get sucked into that because you have to tell yourself every time they get try to suck you in or accuse you of something that's their way of keeping you under that coercive control. You defending yourself, you feeling like it's your fault. You, you know, um, almost like you're a child in trouble with your parent. I mean, it's, you know, try to, try to get out of that dynamic.
0: Well, and you brought up a really good statement, um, that I'm, I will no longer allow you to yell at me that way. I know that when someone's angry and they're yelling and, You know, you're trying to end the conversation and it's not ending, it can feel like you're doing the right thing to just let them get it out and to just not respond. Because, you know, not responding is better than making it worse. But at the same time, even sitting there not responding, that gives them permission to continue yelling at you. Thank you so much, Kristen, for everything that you shared. There's a lot of information there, and keep in mind, this is coming from a domestic violence advocate who has worked with many, many women who are escaping very difficult situations. It's always helpful to speak with someone who is familiar with the laws in your area and who's familiar with domestic violence and who can help you evaluate your situation and create a plan and make some decisions. If you don't know any domestic violence advocates in your area, you can call the domestic violence hotline or reach out to me and I will do my best to find someone who is local to you. For those of you that are still listening that have not been in domestic violence situations, please do keep in mind that if you're trying to help someone, it can be, as Kristen said, a very dangerous time for them. So you need to make sure that you keep their safety a priority and if they're comfortable or not comfortable you need to respect what they say be supportive of them but keep in mind it is their decision to leave and as Kristen said many who do escape domestic violence situations end up either going back to the same abuser or in a relationship with another one we want to be there to help and encourage and support them but we cannot make that decision for them it's up to the individual to seek healing to seek help and to make a different life. Do you remember that story the other day to walk down a different street? Thank you so much for joining us today. Together, we're hope bound. You belong.